Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey everyone, and welcome to the show. Now, today's show really couldn't be more important, and the guests I'm going to introduce to you are two guests we're just so lucky to have. You'll often see that sometimes I do shout-outs on social media when I want guests on, just to get just people's general sense about the voices they most like to hear at any given moment, and the two voices who I'm going to bring in, people were unanimous that that they were the voices they wanted to hear from in terms of people who are calling for the radical, drastic action that's needed. We're talking today about police and institutional misogyny in the aftermath, of course, of the police, uh, the murder by a police officer. And it's important to emphasize that, and I'll explain why in a second, by a police officer of Sarah Everard and the aftermath of that. Now, the statistics in terms of violence against girls and women, the pandemic, are terrifying. Uh, 1.4 million women face domestic violence a year in this country. Uh, 400,000 women a year are sexually assaulted. Uh, Around 90,000 women are raped. Sexual harassment is pandemic on the streets of this country. And obviously, in the society in which we live, we're often told that the protectors of girls and women from that violence are the police. Now, Sarah Everard was killed by a police officer. And again, the reason I say this is several police officers have uh, spoken out as though he wasn't a police officer. They've spoken of him as they don't see him as one of their own, but he was a police officer. And the reason it's important to say that is there is an attempt by much of the police to wash their hands of not an isolated incident, not a one-off, but a extreme example of something which goes to the heart of the nature of the modern police force. Now, Wayne Cousins was nicknamed the rapist by his colleagues because of how uncomfortable he made women. Action wasn't taken against him, despite complaints against him. He allegedly shared WhatsApp messages with police colleagues which are sexist, homophobic and racist. Now, in the aftermath, of these horrific events. Women have been told to flag down buses if they feel scared of being arrested, to run away, which is, of course, what John Charles de Menendez tried to do before he was mowed down by the police back in 2005, to call 999, that they should call the police because they're scared of the police. Now, in the police, and again, these statistics are very important, a woman a week comes forward to report their partner in the police as seriously abusing them and all their children. Every woman that Channel 4 News spoke to who came forward about this uh, said that the police were failing to investigate their own. And just 5% of allegations of domestic abuse against officers and staff have been prosecuted. Since 2010, 750 Metropolitan Police officers have faced sexual misconduct allegations. Of those, 83 have been fired. That's it. Now, 
what we're talking about today is about this institution misogyny, but it's about what we, what happens, what next, what, what do we, what, what sort of demands need to be posed. Now, I'm going to bring in shortly our two guests because we don't need to hear any more from me. Um, just before I do, just the usual uh, housekeeping. Um, you keep the channel up and running, uh, thanks to your support, as ever. Uh, so the documentary we just did about Labour Party conference, we're doing. A, I'm going to Conservative conference after this show uh, in Manchester, uh, where I will be. We will be filming at Conservative Party conference, and we'll be putting some questions, some pretty choice questions to Tory ministers, MPs, and delegates. And uh, many of those questions have been put to us by you on patreon.com forward slash owenjoes84. You pay union wages for our team to be able to make those documentaries, including a, a documentary we're also working on on wealth and power um, in Britain, who has wealth and power. Uh, you can also support the show using Super Chat on YouTube. So click through to YouTube and that way you can put questions to our guests. Uh, also, uh, do you subscribe, obviously. Uh, press like on YouTube. And if you're listening on the podcast, because a big chunk of our audience is now on the podcast, do uh, subscribe to that and uh, spread the word. Right, that is enough for me. Uh, very, very honoured to bring in our two brilliant, brilliant guests, uh, Avaya and Shanit, uh, uh Octavia McBee, both from Sisters Uncut, who are an incredible organisation uh, who everyone should look up immediately. Thank you so much, both of you. How are you doing? Yeah, not too bad. Obviously, it's been quite a challenging week, but um, weekend now, had a bit of rest. So, yeah, thanks for having us on the show. Because you've both been doing, I should say, for everyone either listening or watching, you've both been talking about this all week. It's a pretty emotionally exhausting thing to have to do. So we really appreciate you being able to talk about it. Do you just start just your initial reactions to what what's happened this week? Who wants to start? Just kind of your general, just first random thoughts you want to throw to the ether. So we actually planned an action outside the Old Bailey um, for Wayne Cousins' sentencing because, you know, we thought it was important to, you know, we, we, we felt a, a sense from the Met that they were already trying to sweep this under the carpet as an individual case. We knew that they were trying to sort of limit the conversation around, you know, what this case means you know, for the role of police in our society. And we wanted to do that action outside the Old Bailey to kind of highlight that and to sort of say, no, you are culpable. Um, and, you know, little did we know about, you know, the, 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 the details that were emerging inside the courtroom were absolutely shocking that, that Wayne Cousins, I mean, in some ways I look back and I think, well, of course, of course he would have used all of the, you know, the apparatus at his disposal to carry out, you know, uh, that kidnapping and that, and that, and, um, you know, and that the murder of Sarah Everard, of course, he's not, you know, a run of the mill perpetrator. Why wouldn't he have used his warrant card, his, his handcuffs? But nonetheless, it was absolutely shocking to hear, you know, how he, he used his power, how he used, you know, the, the COVID, COVID-19 regulations so that, you know, people, perhaps expect more to be approached by the police or see people being approached by the police during during lockdown. And he really utilised everything at his disposal to be able to, to carry it out. And it was really, really, really shocking and disturbing. And it, re- 
a lot of people have really felt it to their core like this we know that the police uh do abuse their power to 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 target women but nonetheless it was it's still a, a shocking case it's, it's been really painful to hear and understand the details of Shanice, what, what's your thoughts I think just adding on to what Avia said, um, you know, Wayne Cousins on the 3rd of March used his powers against Sarah Everard to arrest and then kidnap her. Ten days later, officers used those exact same powers to abuse, harass, arrest um, women at Clapham Common Vigil. And so I think one of the major things that's come out this week are not just the several failures in the lead up to um, Sarah Everard's murder and Wayne Cousins' career that should have been clues identifying factors for the fact that he was an abuser no less the fact that his colleagues identified his him as the rapist but i think what is also coming out and has been coming out since uh, the black lives matter movement but has kind of erupted around this question of sexism and misogyny in the police because of sarah everard is the fact that police institutionally reproduce both sexism and racism, regardless of whatever honourable intentions former chief superintendents who are coming out saying some quite interesting things have. And I think for us, this raises the question of, we have a sense of what the police are not good at. They're not good at preventing crime. You can see that in every statistic around crime prevention. Nor are they particularly good at solving crimes once they've happened. Uh, general clear up rates for crimes are below 10% in this country, meaning 90% of crimes go without a conviction. And that's just a conviction. That's not necessarily prosecution. So I think the a big question that's come out of this, this week is, well, at least don't prevent crimes. They don't solve crimes. In fact, they perpetuate violence quite regularly. So what are the police for? And I think that's a really interesting and fundamental question um, that points towards the reason why we no longer need the police and in fact never needed the police. Ordinary people never needed the police. But I think asking the question of, well, what are the police good at and what function do they play in society gives us clues to who the police actually exist to serve and why it's important for us to think about alternatives. Um, and that's something we'll be talking about in depth, just so everybody knows. I mean, just to begin, um, very basic question uh, a lot of people don't understand it so i think it's worth just teasing out a bit when we talk about institutional misogyny or indeed racism what are we talking about exactly how would you how would you just kind of unpack what that means in practice i mean i would say you know one way of understanding it and just kind of going a little bit more on, on what she needs to be talking about what the roots uh, and the reason the police exist why do they exist and fundamentally yeah we're we're taught often through, you know, uh, true crime documentaries or, you know, propaganda like, you know, drama on, on, on TV, that they're, they're there to, like, prevent crime, they're there to investigate crime. But as Shanice, like, very eloquently, um, you know, expressed, actually, in reality, that's not, that's not borne out by the statistics. They're there to discipline and control um, working-class working people, essentially, and, you know, where do, where do women fit into that? I mean, historically, you know, part of that disciplining has been, you know, women were supposed to, you know, serve a particular and have been supposed to serve a particular uh, position within capitalism, you know, raise children, to be at home. Um, and that, you know, families needed to be disciplined to do that. And that meant 
you know, when incidents of domestic and sexual violence occurred, you know, that wasn't some, that was something for the police to investigate. That was a way of maintaining power, maintaining, you know, men's position over women so that they would carry on serving that um, function within. Um, so when we talk about institutional sexism, you know, really that disciplining of, of women is, is there throughout. It's like right to the roots of why the police exist in the first place. So it's not just like an, an issue of neglect as to why police don't investigate domestic and sexual violence. Because domestic and sexual violence is about power, it's about maintaining systems of power, which the police are part of. They're, that's what they're there to do. Um, and so, yeah, it's not, it's not just that they've, you know, they've forgotten or they've neglected or they're just indifferent to, to um, violence towards women. They perpetrate it themselves and they uphold it when men perpetrate on the individual level. They, they, they uphold it because that's how power over women is going to be maintained. Um, so when we talk about institutional um, sexism or institutional misogyny, it goes right to the very root of why policing exists in the first place. Yeah, I'm, I'll, I'll just jump in there to say that, you know, I have a lot of interactions with police. I live in Tottenham and, um, you know, everyone in London will know the history of Tottenham. I'm actually from Birmingham and I, I, I grew up in Handsworth. So if you know anything about black history, you know, Handsworth and Tottenham are key places of kind of um, both police violence and resistance to policing. So one of the recent interactions that I had with police officers, I intervened. Uh, there were four police officers um, who were stopping one black man. Um, and apparently he, he was he was quite drunk, uh, had mental health um, issues. It was really clear from my conversation with him. Um, but one of the police officers, before I even mentioned anything political to them or said anything about race, she said, oh, are you here to play the race card, too? Because we're not racist and we're here to help this guy. So I think this is a really good vision of what we mean by institutional racism. You've got lots of officers who go into the force feeling um, that they want to make a difference for their community. The chief superintendent, Shabnam, who was on uh, radio um, for five with me the other day, said the same thing. She had 30 years experience in the police force and she went in to make a difference and make a change. Unfortunately, through doing that work, she's going to be contributing to and in her case presiding over systems whereby nine uh, black people are nine times more likely to be stopped and searched in London. We are not nine times more likely to commit crimes. When section 60s are in place, black people are 40 times more likely, 40, 40 times more likely to be stopped and searched. There's no evidence. We're not 40 times more likely to commit crimes. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't matter what the individual proclivities of an officer are, whether they think they're racist or not don't care, doesn't matter. At the end of the day, they're presiding and contributing and not challenging systems that reproduce racist outcomes. And when we protest against that racism, they're not on our side of the barricades, they're nicking us. So that's all you need to know about what institutional racism and institutional sexism and misogyny looks like. When 52% of officers who have been found guilty of sexual, um, uh, sexual misconduct still keep their jobs, it doesn't matter whether the people making those decisions are sexist in their heads, they're presiding over sexist outcomes, sexist um, policies, and sexist structures. And that, that's what institutional racism is. And I think, therefore, 
there's a really key question of, well, why? Why do they do this? Why does this exist? And I think that why question um, tells us something fundamental about the role of police in society, but we can get more into that later. Before we talk about alternatives to the police, I mean, let, uh, in the aftermath of this, for example, Labour, amongst others, their argument is there needs to be more police and so on, there needs to be more powers by the state in order to deal with violence against girls and women. What does that, what do more police powers and laws mean in practice when we're talking about this? I mean, I can come in on that a little bit because, you know, I think for the last 30 years that has been, you know, the investment when it comes to trying to deal with and respond to domestic and sexual violence has overwhelmingly been to give the police more powers to do that, um, to create more laws, to have, you know, longer sentences. And actually, you know, A, we're still in exactly, the, you know, the same situation in some in some respects, you know, things are getting worse. Um, and actually, what we do know is that giving the police more powers to to arrest, you know, previously we were in, we we're in a situation where the police, you know, didn't um, investigate at all. Um, they've been given more powers to to arrest and they've been given sort of pro-arrest policies where they're, they're told that they should be making arrests in around like eight out of ten cases. It's actually massively backfired. What we've seen is a massive increase in the number of women, many of whom are actually the survivors of abuse, being arrested, um, either alongside the perpetrator because the police can't or won't figure out who the perpetrator is, or because the added presence of police in people's lives makes them more likely to be arrested you know survivors don't have you know clean cut lives necessarily they may have um insecure immigration status um they may be involved in sex work you know and these are the kinds of things that then become um you know noticed by the police when it comes to immigration there's uh, a freedom of information request uh, made a couple of years ago uh, found that 50 police forces, 50% of police forces in England and Wales have a policy of arresting um, survivors of domestic and sexual violence if they're found to have um, insecure immigration status. And we know, like I used to be a domestic violence advocate, we know that the, there is a problem in, in that the police will often um, prioritise something like a survivor's immigration status over the abuse that she's experienced. And actually, bringing more police into that situation and more police powers and more police presence in people's lives, we know, you know, the claim is it's they're, they're meant to be there to protect people. But that's not what's happening. It, it's criminalising the people it's claiming to protect, um, which is, you know, that being the answer, um, when we know we've got a wealth of evidence for 30 years' worth of evidence that more and more survivors are just being criminalised. They're just ending up in prison, ending up in detention centres, ending up being deported. You know, there are no one wants that, are, you know, no uh, domestic violence um, service is really saying that we need more police to do this. We need housing, we need support services, we need community support. No one's saying they need more police to deal with this because that's not borne out in the evidence. And I'll, I'll just add as well, one of the... When you do research into policing, you discover what the ideological mythologies that the state used to justify um, the, the use of 
a, a, a public serving body that is empowered to use violence against us. And one of the biggest mythologies is that more police on the streets means less crime. It's a myth. And senior police officers know this is a myth as well. And one of the reasons why it's trotted out over and over again, because it's about public relations. People feel the general public believe in this idea that the presence of police means crimes getting dealt with when it's not. Don't take my word for it, listeners. I know there's people in the chat mentioning um, knife crime. Let me give you some facts about knife crime. And again, don't take my word. Go and read the government report about this. 2016, the report is called Operation Blunt 2. You can go and download it yourself online. In the three years before 2011, police were empowered to have Section 60s across 24-7, 365 for three years across London boroughs. At the end of this three years uh, was the 2011 riots, which we now know was um, uh, not just the result of Mark Duggan's murder, but also was a response to police violence and austerity. But this government report found that the increase of police powers and the increase of stop and search had no discernible impact on the levels of crime, including knife crime in London. Some more facts. Glasgow took a public health approach to knife crime. It's complicated. There are things that you can critique. But instead of just increasing police powers and stop and search and police presence, they looked at prevention, youth intervention, mental health, family issues and intervening in family issues such as violence and domestic violence. And what did they see? They saw a decrease in knife crime. Friends, these are facts that you can go and read. Government reports, you can go and read yourself. Increased police powers does not stop crime. Increased police presence on the streets makes people feel good, but has no impact on crime. What has an impact on crime is getting to the root political, economic, social causes that turn ordinary people into adults who commit violence. That's the question that we need to ask ourselves, not more police officers or more powers. If we talk about, you mentioned the COVID powers that were granted, sweeping powers obviously granted by the government um, at the beginning of the pandemic. Do you just want to talk, obviously we can see in this particular case, which is an extreme example, but more more widely. Do you want to start with that, Olivia? Yeah. I thought that was Shanice. Shanice might want to come on on yeah. that. Yeah, you go for it. Shanice, go for it. You're talking specifically about the COVID powers? or Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Co COVID powers. And obviously we saw in this particular murder how the police officer used COVID powers in order to, in order to kidnap and murder Sarah Everard. Yeah, I think that it's important when talking about the COVID powers, how that's now morphed into powers beyond COVID. So with the police crime sentencing and courts bill. So we saw, we know that COVID powers and COVID regulations uh, were disproportionately used in black communities. Surprise, surprise. Um, but what the government are now doing is using the context of the pandemic and the sense and the, the, the desire for people to have uh, to feel safe. They're using that to introduce new measures through the Police Crime Courts and Sentencing Bill. And that will give powers, uh, yet more powers for police to stop and search people without suspicion in some cases. It will give powers for police to uh, evict Gypsy Roma traveller communities from the places that they're staying. And it will give police uh, more powers to clamp down and criminalise protest. None of this is actually getting to the roots of what these issues are. And that's, I think that's one part of the problem. Um, but I think there's an argument to say that 
potentially um, Sarah Everard's murder wouldn't have happened had these powers uh, not been given to the police. And I think that politicians need to seriously ask themselves um, these questions as more powers often means for us and our communities more violence, especially when politicians are refusing to be honest about the institutional problems that are plaguing um, their institutions. We'll come on shortly in terms of alternatives to the police. I mean, that, the point you've, you've, you've both raised it, um, that about domestic abusers in the police and reports of police using their position uh, to target women for sexual abuse. Do you want to start with that? Yeah, so I think, you know, as I said, you know, the news that came out this week around the, the, what Wayne Cousins used and had at his disposal... Uh, to 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 commit kidnap and um, rape and murder, you know we do know that the police use their their powers um, in order to 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 commit you know sexual violence towards towards victims. So, for instance, um, got some some stats here. So, between March two thousand seventeen and and two thousand and nineteen, four hundred and fifteen referrals were made for officers that had abused their position to sexually assault someone. And we know that they're, you know, they don't just target anyone. They specifically targeted domestic and sexual violence victims, sex workers, and drug users. And they target those groups of people because A, they're the most vulnerable, and B, they tend not to be believed, you know, when they when they make an allegation against a police officer. They know that they're likely to get away with it if a sex worker comes and says, this police officer has raped me. No one's going to believe them. No one's going to care. No one's going to listen. And that kind of begs the question, you know, that I'm wondering how many people didn't even bother to make an allegation or didn't even bother to make a report about a police officer having abused them. I'd say I would I would guess that there'd be far, far, far more um, reports that were never made on the assumption that no one was going to believe them because it was a police officer. Um, and I think, you know, Owen, when you did your um, your introduction, you also mentioned um, some of the research that came out of the Centre for Women's Justice. You know, when you said that, you know, one woman a week comes forward uh, to report a serving police officer. And the work of the Centre for Women's Justice is absolutely amazing. And they've said that essentially all of the, some of the women that, that, you know, that they've worked with were themselves police officers who were being abused, domestically abused by a partner who was also a police officer. And it still went uninvestigated. It still became, you know, doors were closed in their in their face, you know. Um, and they've talked about this sort of locker room culture, this like boys club culture of, you know, indifference or, or actually actively trying to... Um, uh, suppress that, you know, those kinds of reports from coming out or doing anything about it. We know that the police are, 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 are pretty abysmal at doing anything about domestic and sexual violence anyway, and they're even worse at, you know, when it comes to when it's perpetrated by their own. Um, and, you know, the fact that, you know, it, we're now starting to um, understand that giving a whole class of people essentially um, impunity, like this level of power with impunity that is unquestioned. Um, it's an interesting, you know, week for having this conversation because the police, it's kind of like this emperor has no clothes moment when the police are saying, well, okay, well, what happens if someone who is completely unaccountable and uh, can act with impunity can abuse their position? What happens if this lone officer comes up to you and you suspect them as be not being legitimate? Well, you wave down a bus or you call the police. 
it's like an embryo has no clothes moment. It's like, well, yeah, a lot of us have been saying for a very long time, like, this is what happens if you give a class of people this level of power and it's completely unaccountable and you can't do anything when they then abuse that power, you know? So I think, you know, it, it's it's interesting now that they're, you know, these, these questions are being put to the police and they actually don't have a response. They have no response. Yeah, I think it's just kind of hilarious how the police are advising to resist arrest by running away in order <laughs> to deal with a police officer or to obstruct an arrest by flagging down a bus or <laughs> calling a police officer in order to not be susceptible to police violence. It's absolutely ludicrous and laughable. And I think what the advice that they're giving is a real, real big reflection of the fact that they're clearly in crisis and clearly have no answer. But just to kind of like, just expand on what Avia said, the, these problems exist throughout the entire criminal justice system. So look at who's in prison. The majority of women in prison are survivors of domestic violence. How are our most vulnerable people ending up through the police, through the courts and in the prison system? When we look at men, in prison. The vast majority have mental health issues, often long term. A very substantial proportion have been in the care system. These are the most vulnerable people in society, men and women, ending up uh, being criminalised and ending up in these institutions where they then get caught and trapped in a cycle of violence, whereby they come out, their job prospects, their housing prospects are low. And so they have to repeat the crimes that they went in for in the first place. Um, it's it's it doesn't work and i think people have to wake up to the fact that what you think you know about what you think you know about the the role that police have in society is not borne out by anything that happens in reality i'm sure there are people out there who've had one or two good experiences with police officers and i and I'm, don't deny that whatsoever but but on a on a national level the policing system does not work in our interests and i think what we have to start thinking about is how do we do this work ourselves? How do we empower communities to keep each other safe? And how do we fundamentally restructure society so that the root causes of crime aren't there to begin with in the first place? So let's, let's come on to that in terms of kind of where next, I suppose. And a lot of people either watching and listening to this will think, I'm with you. This is absolutely, you know, the sort of things we need to be talking about. But then they'll start thinking, you know, the way the police, they literally call themselves the thin blue line, uh, a very often very problematically charged expression, I have to say, that they're keeping society from collapsing into chaos and anarchy. And that resonates with huge numbers of people. People really do feel that it's embedded in their sense of how they understand society around them. So how do we, how would you, you know, just that's a kind of normie opinion, if you like, that millions of people have. Where would you start with that? Where would you kind of, with that person who doesn't know much about the topic, doesn't know about abolitionism and and is angry about the police but but they hear this and they don't they don't get it so what what would you say Should we start with you, yeah so i think kind of following on from what shanice was just you know uh, very eloquently saying i think it's important to actually think about a what the role of like police in our society is and what the role of prisons in our society is because you know a lot of people have been responding when we've said we're saying look the answer to this is not more police it's not more laws it's not you know more prisons you know some people have said for instance you know th there needs to be misogyny hate crime and like the theory behind that is if you bring in misogyny like as a hate crime 
um, sort of hate crime legislation, then maybe you can intervene with the, the smaller stuff before they get to the bigger stuff. You know, you know, when it's indecent exposure, you use that, you use that to, to clear those people up off the streets and put them in prison. But fundamentally, as, you know, as Shani said, you know, prisons are full mostly of extremely vulnerable people. They're very violent institutions. They're probably the most sexually violent institution in society. Um, I fail to really see how you're someone going to prison um, on, on a, a, a less severe, you know, charge of misogyny, hate crime is going to come out of that situation safer to be in society. Because unless you, you know, I assume that those people don't want to send those those people to prison for the rest of their lives. You know, so how in, in what sense are they have they come out safer, um, safer people to be around in society? Clearly, prisons don't make people safer. People get traumatized in prison. People get sexually and physically traumatized in prison. It doesn't make anyone safer in that sense. And I think it's also important to say that you know people say, well, what are you going to do with the rapists? Well, fundamentally, we know that the criminal justice system doesn't investigate rape. Most of the rapists are out and about already. We're navigating them every single day. Most of them aren't in prison. The vast, vast, vast majority of them are not in prison. You know, we, you have to counterpose that that claim against the fact that the CPS is, um, you know, I can't remember the actual statistic, but it's tiny infinitesimal numbers of people actually go to prison for sexual offences. So we're already dealing with the fact that most of the rapists are out and about. So, you know, what can we do with that? How do we address that, given the fact that they are out in community already? Um, I think that it's important to kind of flip some of those arguments on their head and sort of say, you know, people think that they're safe from these things. But actually, the vast majority of people that are uh, perpetrating the kinds of harms in our societies that people in our society that people are most afraid of, those people are part of our community already you know they're not actually in prison um so what can we do like Shani said what can we do to make sure that communities are able to respond to that um and are actually better resource to be able to respond to that and address that in a way that doesn't actually exacerbate the problem like prisons do yeah i, I think i, I just want to um make maybe what might seem as like quite a contradictory point but in in some ways the police do exist to prevent anarchy and society collapsing because at any point where the working class has been in motion and has been a threat to the social order it's been the police who's prevented any systemic change from taking place whether that's the miners strike whether that's the huge um, protests that took place from the 60s to the 70s in the US and the UK. At any point where there's been a threat to the power of the state and a power of the government, and even a little inkling of ordinary working class people taking the reins of society into their hands, the police have prevented that from happening. So in some cases, it is actually correct to say the police prevent anarchy, but what they don't prevent is crime, harm and violence. Um, and I think thinking, I think exactly what Avia said is completely bang on. People say to abolitionists, well, what are you going to do with the rapists? What are you going to do with the murderers? What are you going to do with all these people that commit knife crime? Funnily enough, the police haven't answered that question either, because the vast majority of rapists are still out there. The vast majority of people who commit knife crime are still out there. You know, these questions haven't been answered by the police either. So I think what we need to start thinking about is a couple of things. First of all, what are the root causes of 
violence and harm. What turns a young boy, an innocent young boy, into a violent misogynistic man? What turns a survivor of domestic abuse uh, into someone who's stealing um, from shops? And that's a very easy one to answer, in fact. But some of these questions are quite hard and some of these questions are quite difficult. Some people are asking these questions already. So Minneapolis City Council, for example, is deciding on whether it's going to be defunding its police um, policing um, system. But the question isn't just defund and leave it and jog on. It's all right. How can we invest in mental health specialists who are going to ensure that if someone's going through a mental health crisis, there's someone fully trained with how to deal with that? And if had that happened, perhaps Kingsley Burrell, perhaps Sean Rigg, perhaps Dalian Atkinson, killed by police following a mental health crisis, would still be alive today. When domestic abuse takes place in our community or rape or sexual violence, what would happen if the entire community, your neighbours, your family, had the knowledge, had resources in order to respond to that and keep each other safe? Instead of someone hearing shouting and screaming in their neighbour's house, thinking, oh my God, I don't know what to do. What happens if we had networks in our community who were trained to respond to that and could take someone out of a violent situation collectively and keep them safe? Because we know that when the police arrive, as Avia said, sometimes they're arresting the victim anyway, and the perpetrator is not going to prison. So the police don't have answers to these questions. What happens if our public services are fully funded, fully funded and fully free at the point of access so that no one, no survivor has to steal nappies from Tesco and ends up in prison as a result? What happens if we have early intervention in family violence that means that someone and a, a lot of people who, who go on to commit knife crime have experienced violence both in the streets from the police and in home. What happens if we live in a society that intervenes in that violence before it becomes a knife crime on the streets? These are the questions that will solve the problem. What won't solve the problem is pontificating about whether 500 police officers on the streets instead of 300 is going to make a difference. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Just a question we've had uh, from David Bowers, which I think is actually really interesting. Labour and all the Tories seem interested in reforming the police, so how do we protect ourselves from the police? And the reason I bring that up is, and I, I should just make this clear at the outset, one of my pet hates is people who seek or try to rehabilitate Theresa May. Um, so I, an odd thing to have to say, but the reason I say it is this. 
Theresa May, who presided over, for example, the deportation of Black Britons and the so-called hostile, hostile environment and the rampant racism that entailed, she spoke more about the problems affecting the Metropolitan Police than Labour did now, and Labour have today. Now, that's, again, that's not to whitewash Theresa May. It's just to show that Labour haven't even managed or aren't managing to match that the, the the level that Theresa May managed. So what what does that tell us? And um, and given now we have, to be honest, a Labour leadership which has just abdicated the most basic elements of opposition, uh, and probably will actually try to find ways on this issue to be to the right of the Conservatives. That's basically where they're heading. And that does, the danger of that closes the political space because, and that's, by the way, I should say, that isn't to say that in the period of Corbynism, this was all great because Corbynism did not take, I would say, issues of, of, of the justice system as seriously as it could have done. But anyway, Avia, what do you think in terms of that? I mean, yeah, I'm very uh, disturbed by some of the reports of, you know, um, Keir Starmer wanting to bring in kind of like, neighborhood snitch watches and um you know this sort of culture towards policing you know i've seen his his response has been from the the news this week very insensitively to again press forward with okay well more police at the point when women are shouting louder than ever well clearly a response to a, a, a murder committed by a serving policeman can't just be more police officers there's you know this is a complicated um, issue and it's absurd to be responding to it that way but you know you know Labour seem to be making the age-old kind of mistake of trying to out Tory the Tories and it when it comes to uh, policing yet again at the point when people are actually in a period of reflection of, around policing and what the role of policing is when you know the people that are usually might be uh, for more policing are actually taking a step back from that. He's take, stepping forward into the arguments of, yeah, more police, more police powers. That's going to have to be the answer. Um, and the, the, the question there was like, well, if the if Labour and Tories aren't interested in, in rolling back on policing, then, then who's going to protect us from the police? And fundamentally, that's going to have to be us. It's going to have to be communities. If they're going to keep investing in in, in policing as the answers to all the social problems that Shanice has, uh, you know, gone into, um, and we know that's not going to work, um, then it's going to have to be with us. And, like, you know, um, when it kind of emerged, uh, you know, over the last few days um, with Wayne Cousins sentencing that, you know, Sarah Everard's kidnapping essentially took place in full view of witnesses who saw... Um, him approach her, saw him arrest her and who didn't intervene because they assumed that, you know, he was a police officer, he's in the right, she must have done something wrong. And in response to that, Sisters Uncut has been promoting uh, police intervention training. You know, there are lots of different groups that have for years, over, the, you know, decades, who have um, started up cop watch um, patrols, who have done a lot of the work of training people up in being able to know how to respond, you know, going up to, um, you know, someone's been stop and search, filming that interaction, taking down badge numbers, asking the police, um, you know, um, under what order are you doing this, you know, clarifying 
things for that person so that they know their rights and they know what kind of situation they're in and that they know that they're being supported. And who knows if someone had done that when uh, Sarah Everard was stopped by Wayne Cousins, perhaps he would have actually backed off and left it. You know, that's the kind of situation we want to be able to see that communities, that people around see the police and bring that kind of scrutiny and know and feel confident and able to go into that situation and question the police. Because fundamentally, the more people do that, their their power fundamentally relies on that kind of tacit consent that, well, I, I assume that, you know, that person's done something wrong. I'm basically tacitly consenting to the police getting on with their business. Going into that situation with a little bit of skill and a little bit of knowledge can make all the difference. And I think, you know, fundamentally, we can't keep investing in, in, in politicians to be doing that for us when actually we, we can have the skills and knowledge to be able to make a difference in those situations. Janice? Yeah, so I think part of the problem with Keir Starmer's Labour is it, it's, theory, its theory of change is that we don't change. And what I mean by that is a social movement often starts from the position of being a minority in society, so the civil rights movement or the feminist movement, and it works as a movement to try and change hearts and minds, to try and convince people that there's a better way of doing things. And unfortunately, the Labour Party seems to think that instead of trying to present a vision for what a better society could look like, it just has to meet the population where it's at. And sadly, the Tories have recognised that the population is a lot more progressive than I think Keir Starmer's uh, Labour Party sometimes recognises. Um, so I think it's no it's no surprise that the, the Labour Party is often seen as uh, to the right of people like Theresa May and to the right on you know questions of like broadband and public services and paying nurses and things like that because it assumes that the public is a static body with fixed traditional views and has no vision um, of how to take society on a, on a different path. So I think that's the first thing. I think um, when it comes to kind of um, uh, what Avia was saying about in terms of uh, alternatives to policing um, and, and specifically how communities can make a difference, I urge everyone, if you witness um, a police interaction, to intervene. But I want to be clear on what intervention is. Intervention is not escalation. Intervention is ensuring that the police are accountable and following the letter of the law. So what can you do? Film the police interaction. Ensure that you take down and you as the public have the right to know what a police officer's name is, what station they're from, what their badge number is and what their vehicle registration number is. You should be writing down the date, the time, the location of the interaction that you're filming. And you should be explaining to the person being detained that they have a right to know what a police officer's name, badge number and station number is, that they have a right to know why they're being stopped, under what power, that they have a right to know the suspicion, the thing that they're being suspected of. And the person being detained has the legal right to all of this information. And if you're filming, there's no way that the police, well, there, there are lots of ways, um, you know, Police murders have been filmed in the past with with no with no um, accountability, but you're giving the person being detained a better chance of having a legal interaction. So that's what you can do. 
And this is what we mean by alternatives to policing. There are some fantastic examples of communities resisting uh, evictions, resisting deportations, mm -hmm. and actually preventing injustice from taking place. If we can do that against the state, we can keep people safe in our communities. We can be empowered to have the, the connections, the networks, the knowledge and the resource to support our neighbors if they're experiencing abuse or violence of some kind. If we're trained to do so, we can intervene in street harassment um, and we'll have the knowledge to do that. It's impossible to know whether if the witnesses had intervened in um, uh, Wayne Cousins arresting Sarah Everard, would she still be here today? but there's a chance that she would have been. And I think that consent that we give to policing, that unwitting, unquestioned trust is a problem because we know factually, statistically, they abuse that trust all too often. So just finally then, um, and and partly, I, I want to do this partly just to solve the work of Sisters and Cop, but in terms of what forms do you see the struggle against misogyny taking and... There'll be women watching or listening to this who might want to get involved in something. There might be men who wonder how they can be allies. I mean, what's your general sense in terms of the struggle ahead and what you'd say to people watching or listening, what they can do? Avia. Uh, so I think that, you know, one of the reasons, um, it, you know, that Sisters Uncut has long before this, this case, you know, emphasised the importance of fighting state violence alongside domestic and sexual violence is because we actually see those two things as linked. So, you know, a lot of the way in which we're taught and brought up um, to think about domestic and sexual violence is that it's just an interpersonal thing. It's something that individuals do to other individuals and it's just bad people that have bad, bad feelings within them. Maybe they just weren't brought up very well and that's why they perpetrate domestic or sexual violence against people. And that's not true. You know, as far as we're concerned, state violence is very intimately connected with domestic and sexual violence. The violence perpetrated by police in our communities, the violence perpetrated by um, governments on our communities has a lot to do with what drives violence at the interpersonal level. It sets the standard through which we understand power and how we get power. Um, so I do think, you know, linking those two things, that's why this week, we, you know, we've been very, very, um, you know, keen to emphasise, you know, these cop watch patrols are part of the fight against misogyny. It's not just a, a response to what happened to Sarah Everard. We've long been arguing that the police's violence towards women and, and violence towards communities in general needs to be linked with interpersonal violence. If we're able to intervene in that, then... Mm -hmm we're going to have a much better chance of being able to heal from the individual acts of violence that happen and, and individual acts of um, harm that happen in our communities. So I think, it, you know, I think it's extremely important that we link those things. Um, and essentially, you know, we need to, you know, Shanice has kind of touched on it. I've kind of touched on it a little bit. We do need to find ways to better resource our communities and make sure that we're in a position to address you know, the harm that happens within our community, that that power is put back into our hands so that we know how to respond. You know, the kind of, you know, as abolitionists, we think quite a lot about, well, what's it going to take to be able to address these issues? And like, actually, most of the time when we think about, 
you know, um, when something's gone wrong in our family, if someone's, you know, stolen, uh, you say your cousin's stolen something from you, is it the police that you go to first or are there other people, members of your family that you would go to to kind of address that and, and, and you know, find a way to, to figure out, you probably wouldn't go to the, to the police as your sort of first port of call. So it's kind of thinking about well, what, what things do we already do outside of the police to address problems that are happening within our family, within our community, and how can we upscale that and basically like pro- properly resource that and make people feel empowered to address things outside of the police, which everyone, you know, that we organise with is saying it's just making things worse. It's making things more violent. It's making violence more likely. So what can we do to to address that within our communities? I think yeah, that's um, that's some that's that's the kind of like where things are going. And Shalise, finally, I think that my starting place is that this change isn't going to be made by politicians or people in suits or people who have chief superintendent as their title or whatever if you look at throughout history at any seismic fundamental social change where people have demanded to be treated better that's been led by people who have been considered pariahs or minorities in society, I can assure you as someone who myself defines myself as an abolitionist, you often get quite horrified responses um, from people. But I think the, the, the fundamental is that if we want to challenge these institutions, we can't expect the institutions to do that work themselves. That pressure has to come from ordinary people who are listening to this and ordinary people in our communities. We have got the power collectively um, to challenge all of this crap. So then the question is, well, well, how do we do that? We've got the police crime sentencing and courts bill being pushed through parliament that will give police yet more powers to enact what we saw happen to Sarah, yet more powers to enact what we saw happen at Clapham Common Vigil and what we see happening in our communities. If you're black, if you live in Tottenham, if you live in Handsworth on a daily basis, we have to collectively come together, whether that's in protest, whether that's lobbying, whether that's putting pressure on um, politicians, whether that's shouting things in the media, whether that's talking to your family and friends and getting them to see these issues as well. We have to collectively come together um, to prevent that bill from being enforceable and being governable, whether that's intervening in stop and searches or defending people from deportation or whatever it is. There's lots of different answers. There's lots of things that we can do, but I stress that that's going to be cre- that change is going to be created by ordinary people. It's clearly not coming from Keir Starmer, and it's clearly not coming from Cressida Dick and Pretty Patel. Just like with the McPherson report, we created the McPherson report. Ordinary people created the McPherson mm-hmm. report. If it wasn't for our work, our mobilisation, if it wasn't for Stephen Lawrence's family protesting, challenging, campaigning, that report would have never happened. History is made and changed by ordinary people, not by politicians in suits in Westminster. So I think you guys on the call, you need to see yourselves as the historical actors that are going to make this change. What an amazing way to end. Honestly, both of you have been so incredible, so inspiring, so informed, uh, all the nuances. Lots of people will be challenged in terms of what they thought at the beginning and I think we'll be spurred on to take action and we can't really ask for more than that. So thank you so much, especially given both of you have been doing so much emotional labour around this subject for the past uh, few days. Um, Also, before 
I let you go. Shadiks, I was just whereabouts in the north are you from? Because I was noticing your dulcet northern tones as a northerner. And I was just I'm wondering. From Birmingham. Oh, Birmingham. It wasn't good. Oh, blimey. There we go. I've probably insulted both of us there. <laughs> That's all right. No one likes us anyway, so it doesn't make a difference. I like Birmingham. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> uh, but seriously, that was that was incredible. And and everyone do follow both of our guests, but also Sisters and Court, who do the most phenomenal and uh, inspiring work. So thank you both so, so much. Uh, I owe you both drinks at the very least. <laughs> um, but love and solidarity. And thank you so, so much. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. Speak yeah, to you soon. Bye-bye. They were both brilliant. We're so lucky to have people like that. Brilliant activists who are so courageous and determined and so full of insight to educate myself. Uh, I've been very educated by that and I'm, I hope you all have as well. Just to finish up, I, I as I've said, I'm going to Conservative Party Conference. Um, lucky me, what did I do in a past life? <laughs> uh, but we're going to do a documentary from Conservative Party Conference back in Manchester, where I'm from. So that's exciting at least. Good to be back up, uh, back up in to North. I do want to fit, I mean, we'll talk a lot about Tory Commons next week. We'll have a documentary, which, as I say, you make possible. So thank you so much, because it takes a lot of time, resources and money to make that possible. We pay union wages for that to happen. We don't speak our principles. We we live by them. But I just want to talk about Labour Conference a bit, because obviously I did the documentary. And do check out the documentary if you've not watched it. And I just want to just add on, because since the documentary, obviously, Keir Starmer did his speech. And uh, if you, the speech was um, uh, lauded uh, by, I suppose, the self-described centrist wing of the British commentariat um, and much of the broadcast media as this great speech because Keir Starmer thumped the left and they love nothing more than the left getting thumped. It wasn't just centrist, right-wing media. They loved it. They, they love all of that. They were like, yes, fine. they want a Kinnock moment. They want, the, they want to ice pick the left. And they saw this speech of... Keir Starmer and, you know, he's being heckled by the evil pantomime lefties and he stuck it to them and made it clear he was going to define himself against Corbynism and, uh, you know, this was going to be this great triumphant success that would self-evidently work. Now, the polling has come out since that conference speech and Labour's lead has gone down. Now, I don't get any joy from that. Um, I am an incorrigible Labourite. I joined the Labour Party when I was 15 years old and Tony Blair was leader of the Labour Party. And I voted for the Labour Party in every national and local election in my life, which some people on the left, frankly, find risable. But that's just who I am. That's how I was brought up. And I just find it fascinating how the same people basically cheered on Change UK and thought it was going to be this great, phenomenal success are the same people cheering on Keir Starmer's so-called political project, which is a disaster, by the way, on its own terms. And what we've seen is we're seeing a fascinating experiment, a really fascinating experiment, in a Labour Party offering no vision to the country, just pressing a big red button called kick the left. Uh, and, you know, as I keep saying, and I am going to keep saying it because it's true, and I say it because I get a lot of stick on social media, often by people who are delusional enough to believe that my social media posts are responsible for the dire state that the Labour Party currently faces, uh, which is Keir Starmer has had an easier ride than any Labour leader, not just since Corbyn or Miliband or Brown, but since, since Blair. I mean, Brown, Miliband and Corbyn. I mean, you know, Corbyn got the worst monstering. Those other two got a monstering. I mean, do you remember? Brown got a monstering. I mean, you know, he was portrayed as a raging lefty. They went after him for his handwriting when he wrote a, 
a letter to a, uh, a bereaved uh, family of a dead soldier. I mean, they really went for they they went for them. So Keir Starmer's had an easy ride. The only thing they tried to go for him out over was a, a donkey sanctuary, which was so ludicrous uh, and everyone found absurd. Uh, he's had a very easy ride. Labour MPs have treated him with kid gloves and his polling is terrible. Very, very bad polling indeed. And this speech was, the way it was portrayed is it was this big game changer moment that was going to turn things around. Because finally Keir Starmer, because the people say, well, he's crowded out by the pandemic. Even though in other countries, governments which have presided over the pandemic and handled it not as badly as the Conservatives in this country, those governments are... I mean, in Germany, they've just been kicked out of office. Apparently, in this country, there was a specific issue where the Conservative government are doing very well, unlike other governments uh, who presided over this uh, terrible pandemic. Now, he, this, you know, this was his moment to speak to the nation, a reset button. And he spoke to the nation and Labour's polling has gone down by only one point, but it hasn't gone up. And normally in any conference, you get a conference boost. Now, I thought Labour was going to get a conference boost just because increased visibility, loads of positive coverage. You've got wall-to-wall positive coverage. And the country is falling to pieces. We've had 150,000 dead, many of them avoidably. We've got literally people queuing outside of petrol stations. We're running out of petrol. The army is providing fuel supplies in this country. If this was a Labour government, the narrative would be an existential crisis enveloping the country. The army delivering fuel and the Labour Party has no inroads whatsoever. No clear message, no clear vision. Just let's attack the left. And you know what? It isn't working. So I think that's fascinating because that's their rule book. That's their playbook. It's been cheered on by the media and it isn't working. And I am very worried about Conservative Party Conference because if wall-to-wall coverage of a positive nature for Keir Starmer, in which he's been lauded across the media from the centrist to the right, because they love kicking the left more than anything, uh, plus a terrible national crisis. If that isn't enough to cut through, and now we're going to have Conservative Party conference where Boris Johnson is going to do his big cheerful optimism and some big vision and messages and get lauded by most of the right-wing press, what's going to happen then? And I would say this to them. You don't have any ideas. You don't know what you're doing. I wrote a column this week, which caused a lot of anger because I pointed out that unlike New Labour, who I have very substantive disagreements with, those people who founded New Labour were titans compared to these people. Like they were, they knew what they were doing. They were, you know, they were political master strategists in their time. Alistair Gamble, Peter Mandelson, Brown, Blair, substantial figures. And they walloped the Conservatives. I mean, they, 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 they you know... They had a kind of, how many Tories are we going to eat for breakfast in the 90s? Didn't offer the vision I wanted for the country. Illegally invaded Iraq and killed a lot of people. Were they effective in the 90s against John Major's government? Yes, they were. These people haven't laid one lasting punch on a Conservative government which has presided over the worst peacetime disaster of our modern times. Not one lasting punch. They let them get away with the pandemic and the way that was handled. And now they're letting them get away with food shortages and oil and, and, and fuel running out. It's just, it's just beyond belief. And then you still get, you know, and this is the other thing. People go, go on, went on about how Corbynism was a cult. You know what? Some people online could be a bit cult-like occasionally. 
happens with every political movement, to be honest with you. Scottish nationalism, Thatcher. I mean, we could go through all political stripes. Some people can get a bit culty. At least with Corbynism, even in its cruder forms, people were investing their hopes in at least a vision and some ideas and something to transform the country. Might have seen far-fetched to some people. Might have seen, you know, like a desperate hope that people did believe in something. This leadership, what are people investing in? No principles? Uh, not electable? Lost one seat already that Corbyn kept, even in the 2019 electoral inferno. Terrible polling. Uh, so not electable, not principled, not honest. Reneged on all his election promises. But that's fine, because honesty, dishonesty only matters when it's Boris Johnson and Brexit. That's according to the Liberals. They're angry about that. Dishonesty is terrible. It's paving the road to fascism. I think dishonesty of Boris Johnson and the Brexit is, was a, was a disgrace. I've written about it extensively. But I'm consistent, you see. These people aren't because they don't care about dishonesty as long as someone else is on the receiving end. It's the left. As long as the left are getting bludgeoned with dishonesty, they don't care. If it's, if it's, you know, they just don't like, they just don't like being on the receiving end of dishonesty. That's no objection to it. So not, not honest, not principled, not electable, not charismatic. Come off it. My cat here is infinitely more charismatic than the current leader. Sounds personal, but I don't think it is. I think charisma is an important attribute if you don't have any other attributes which you're willing to offer as a leader of the, of the Labour Party. Uh, integrity, no integrity. Try, they, they sacked Angela Rayner, the deputy leader, after the Hartlepool debacle because uh, they wanted to scapegoat a working-class woman from Stockport for that, even though that was Keir Starmer's campaign. So no integrity either. What is there? Seriously, what is there? What is there on offer? What what is what is there to invest in here? And and then you get all these people on Twitter who are acting like a cult because they literally are behaving as though even though he's had the easiest ride from the media and his MPs of any uh, leader since Blair and has disastrous polling, that the reason he's struggling is because people like me are now speaking on YouTube or on my Twitter account uh, about the failures of the Labour leadership. It's just it's just such a you know this whole thing is just a perverse tragedy. It really is. The Labour Party, you know, Keir Starmer, he won on a specific mandate, which he abandoned, and he hasn't got anything from it. It's not like some people go, well, you've got politics as a dirty game, but, you know, he's going to win because of it. No, he's not. Look at his polling. It's terrible. He's never going to be prime minister, is he? I mean, the odds are very, very low indeed. Unless there's such a terrible national disaster or something befalls the Conservatives of such a gross scandal. Never going to be prime minister. He's just a guy who lied his way to the leadership of the Labour Party uh, and then got applauded by people who, as I've said, applauded all the disasters like the People's Vote campaign in Change UK and uh, and then has similar disastrous results. And these are the people who think they're the grown-ups of politics. They know how politics works. We're just children, you see. We're naive, idealistic children. We don't know how the world works. These people do. They just know how politics works. But they don't, do they? They don't know what they're doing. They have no idea what they're doing whatsoever. And the people surrounding Keir Starmer, you know, I put this to a shadow minister. I said they were acting like maniacs when they tried to impose an electoral college to give extra, uh, basic disproportionate power to members of parliament in voting for the next leader so the left could be excluded. That's the whole point of it. Uh, I said they were acting like maniacs and the shadow minister said it's worse than that. They're just incompetent. And that's the problem. The people around Keir Starmer are the most ludicrous crude factional players like they're, they're they're parodies they're people who watched a lot of the west wing and think they're in the west wing that's who they are 
and you meet them and they are so unimpressive, I can't even put into words. Not like Mandelson and Campbell. I've got my own views on them. These people are incompetent and mediocre and in in and 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 entirely defined by their hatred of the left. Not the Tories, the left. You know, they want to rerun bashing the trots in the 1980s. That's all they care about. Not a vision for the country. And when people say to me, oh, oh, you, oh, you, you know, you, you only attack the left. Why don't you attack the Tories, Erin? Come off it. Don't take the piss. Spent 10 years doing that. And I'm not going to stay silent while the Labour Party is thrown off a cliff by the most absurd factional players who are being applauded by a commentariat, which I'm afraid is completely divorced from reality. And this Labour leadership, this project has failed on its own terms. It's going nowhere and it's taking the Labour Party down with it. I've had my run. I'm just, it's, it's aggravating. It's very aggravating. So we are going to go to Tory conference and we're going to spend all week talking about the Tories, which is my comfort zone. <laughs> Um, so that will be good. We've got lots of interviews coming up and a documentary about wealth and power in Britain. Uh, you make those documentaries possible on patreon.com forward slash Owen Jones 84. Um, so thank you so, so much. And do press like on YouTube and subscribe and please subscribe on our podcast and leave a review if you feel so inclined. Um, I hope you're doing well amidst all of this. Um, it's going to be a long winter by the looks of things. But do you know what? I'm just thinking, actually, just to end on a more hopeful note, when I speak to, for example, the guests we've got today, I get hope because I do look as a geriatric millennial at younger people and think that's the those generations have the determination and guts and imagination to change the world. And they're going to get there. We'll get, we're taking the scenic route, but we're going to get there. And a lot of what we're seeing at the moment is just almost spite towards those younger people and their dreams and aspirations and hopes. But they're going to have the last laugh in the end. I'm absolutely convinced of that. That is enough for me. Lots of love, everybody. And I will see you uh, live next Sunday. But also, as I've said, we've got loads of stuff. Our documentary, the Conservative documentary, will be out next week, which will, which is always a bit of a classic. Lots of love. Speak to you soon. Thanks for listening, everyone. I hope you found that informative, educational, uh, interesting. And I certainly did. Uh, do support us on Patreon to keep the show on the road. Uh, forward slash Owen Jones 84. Leave us some stars. That'd be nice. Spread the word. And I look forward to speaking to you soon.